0: Many of us remember vacation Bible school. We sang silly songs with elaborate hand motions. We memorized Bible verses. We drank little cups of juice and ate animal crackers. And depending on our age, we learned the stories of our faith through the cutting edge media of the day, from flannel graphs to puppet shows to well-produced videos of singing vegetables. But I think for a lot of people, This is about as far as we have gone in our exploration of these stories, particularly those in the Old Testament, and that's a problem. Over the next couple of months, we will be rereading some of the most celebrated biblical stories of our youth, but this time we will be setting them in their proper historical context, which means that even though we may have heard the stories of Noah and Abraham and David and Jonah, we may have missed the point. I mean, they aren't really kids' stories. So brace yourselves and break out the animal crackers. This is Adult
1: VBS. Those of you that don't know, we have been going over uh, in the last five or six weeks a sermon series called Adult Vacation Bible School in which we have been looking at the Old Testament, some really classic Old Testament stories and then placing them in their historical context. For the new visitors, this is the last time I will make you known, for the new visitors what we seem to do here is we place stories back in the ancient Near East, which usually means that we sort of dismantle some of the ways in which we have heard them in the past. So one of the underlying (laughs) motifs of this sermon series has been what you think you know, you probably don't know, Uh, and today is no different. This is the last week in which we are going to be looking at an Old Testament text, and this is perhaps the most well-known text Uh, In the entire Old Testament, it's the story of David and Goliath, and I thought it would be good for us because usually we can just rehearse the story for anyone that spent any amount of time in the church, and maybe even for people that haven't. You know sports well enough to know the story of David and Goliath. I thought it would be good for us to reread this story again. It's 58 verses. I've, I've timed it out. It takes me a few minutes to get through this, okay? I'm going to try to be as lively and animated as possible to keep you with me, but we're in church, and if you can't read your Bible in church, where, where can you? You know what I mean? All right. All right. What'd you say? Are you heckling? Yes, but we should also read it in here. That's my case, and I will try to prove that point as we go on. This is the story of David and Goliath from 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, go for it. I will be reading from the Common English Bible. It is on U version and it's become one of my top three translations that I've been looking at here recently. All right, so this is verse one. The Philistines assembled their troops for war at Soco of Judah. They camped between Soco and Azekah at Ephes Damim. Saul and the Israelite army assembled and camped in the Elah Valley where they got organized to fight the Philistines. The Philistines took positions on one hill while Israel took positions on the opposite hill. There was a valley in between them. A champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was more than nine feet tall. Side note here, there's a lot of discussion as to how tall Goliath actually is. The Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, places him more at like six and a half feet, but people are, varying uh, on how tall he actually is, anywhere from six and a half feet to eight feet to nine feet. Okay, he had a bronze helmet on his head and wore bronze-scale armor weighing 125 pounds. He had bronze plates on his shins and a bronze scimitar hung on his back. His spear shaft was as strong as the bar on a weaver's loom and its iron head weighed 15 pounds. His shield-bearer walked in front of him. He stopped and shouted to the Israelite troops, why have you come and taken up battle formations? I am the Philistine champion and you are Saul's servants. Isn't that right? Select one of your men and let him come down against me. If he is able to fight me and kill me, then we will become your slaves. But if I overcome him and kill him, then you will become our slaves and you will serve us. I insult Israel's (laughs) troops today. Very forthright Goliath, he'll let you know exactly what he's doing in the moment that he is doing it. The Philistine continued, give me an opponent and we'll fight. When Saul and all Israel heard what the Philistines said, they were distressed and terrified. Now David was Jesse's son, an Ephraimite from Bethlehem in Judah who had eight sons. By Saul's time, Jesse was already quite old and far along in age. Jesse's three oldest sons had gone with Saul to war. Their names were Eliab, the oldest, Abinadab, the second oldest, and Shammah, the third oldest. David was the youngest. These three older sons followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul's side to shepherd his father's flock in Bethlehem. I may or may not come back to this, but this is an important uh, editorial note about David going back and forth, okay? So just tuck that one in the back of your mind for a moment. For 40 days straight, the Philistine came out and took his stand, both morning and evening. Jesse said to his son David, please take your brothers and ephah of this roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread. Deliver them quickly to your brothers in the camp. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. And here, take these 10 wedges of cheese to their unit commanders. (laughs) Cheese, you know? It's tasty, (laughs) right? Who's with me? Okay. Find out how your brothers are doing and bring back some sign that they are okay. They are with Saul and all the Israelite troops fighting the Philistines in the Elah Valley. So David got up early in the morning. He left someone in charge of the flock. David does this a couple times in the story. He's leaving the things that he is to care for in the possession of someone else. He leaves the flock in charge of uh, someone else and loaded up and left just as his father Jesse had instructed him. He reached the camp right when the army was taking up their battle formations and shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines took their battle formations opposite each other, remember, on opposite sides of these hills. David left his things with an attendant and ran to the front line. This is his cheese and his provisions for his brothers. When he arrived, he asked his brothers how they were doing. Right when David was speaking to them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came forward from the Philistine ranks and said the same things he had said before. And David listened. When the Israelites saw Goliath, every one of them ran away terrified of him. Now this is an editorial note about something that has already happened in the past. Now the Israelite soldiers had been saying to each other, do you see this man who keeps coming out? He keeps coming out to insult Israel. The king will reward with great riches whoever kills that man. The king will give his own daughter to him and make their families exempt from taxes. David asked the soldiers standing by him, what will be done for the person who kills that Philistine over there and removes this insult from Israel? Who is that uncircumcised Philistine anyway that he can get away with insulting the army of the living God? This is some language that's uh, pervasive throughout the Old Testament where Israel is the covenanted people. They are in relationship with God and the sign of that is for the males to be circumcised. So to call someone an uncircumcised Philistine is to say you are outside of the family, okay? Then the troops repeated to him what they had been saying. So that's what will be done for the man who kills them, they said, as if they're just tacking on to the uh, to what they have already said to David. When David's oldest brother Eliab heard him talking to the soldiers, he got very mad at David. Why did you come down here, he said? Who's watching those few sheep for you in the wilderness? I know how arrogant you are and your devious plan. You came down just to see the battle. I love David's response here. And I imagine it this way. (laughs) What did I do wrong this time? It was just a question. (laughs) Like punk kid, the youngest of eight. His brothers say, I know you're devious. Okay, just you can interpret your own tone into that, whatever you want. So David turned to someone else and asked the same thing and the people said the same thing in, in, in reply. So he's getting this word of what's happening. The things David had said were overheard and reported to Saul who sent for him. Don't let anyone lose courage because of this Philistine, David told Saul. I, your servant, will go out and fight him. Or if you will, I will go fight him. <laughs> okay, just picture this. You can't go out and fight this Philistine, Saul answered David, you're still a boy. Tuck this away. But he's been a warrior since he was a boy. There's differences between David and Goliath according to Saul in this passage. Your servant has kept his father's sheep, David replied to Saul, and if ever a lion or a bear came and carried off one of the flock, I would go after it, I would strike it, I would rescue the animal from its mouth, and if it turned on me, I would grab it by its jaw and strike it and kill it. Your servant has fought both lions and bears, my parentheses, and won. This uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of them because, catch it, he has insulted the army of the living God. David's piety seems to be on display here. No one will talk about David's God in the way that that uncircumcised Philistine is doing. The Lord, David added, who rescued me from the power of both lions and bears will rescue me from the power of this Philistine. Go, Saul replied to David and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own gear, putting a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. Remember, Goliath is wearing hundreds of pounds of armor, uh, a coat of mail that weighs 125 pounds. This is similar for all of the people in the room that go to the gym, you know? This is like the barbell and plates, okay? He's ready, and Saul is wanting David to also be ready. David strapped his sword on over the armor, but he couldn't walk around well because he'd never tried it before. This is where the the Hebrew Bible authors get really creative. I can't walk in this, David told Saul, because I've never tried it before. (laughs) So he took him off. He then grabbed his staff and chose five smooth stones from the streambed. He put them in the pocket of his shepherd's bag and with sling in hand went out to the Philistine. The Philistine got closer and closer to David. Pick up on the resonances of the author here and how it's describing Goliath. The Philistine gets closer and closer to David and his shield bearer was in front of him. When the Philistine looked David over, he sneered at David because he was just a boy, reddish brown and good looking. That sounds like a dating profile. If ever there was one, swipe right on that. I'm married, swiping right is good? Yeah. You're married too? How do you know these things? Okay. Let's back that up, (laughs) edit. Uh, The Philistine asked David, am I some sort of dog that you come at me with sticks, plural, sticks, plural, not one, plural, got it? And he cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said to David, and I'll feed your flesh to the wild birds and the wild animals. But David told the Philistine, you are coming against me with sword and spear and... Scimitar? Just in case you need a a picture here. Scimitar, curved blade, worn on the back. You are coming against me with sword, spear, and scimitar, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of heavenly forces. The God of Israel's army, the one you've insulted, today the Lord will hand you over to me. I will strike you down and cut off your head. Today, I will feed your dead body and the dead bodies of the entire Philistine camp to the wild birds and the wild animals. Or, I mean, I guess you could, today I'm gonna feed your dead body and, you know, just however then the whole world will know that there is a God on Israel's side and all those gathered here will know that the Lord doesn't save by means of sword and spear. The Lord owns this war and he will hand all of you over to us. The Philistine got up and moved closer to attack David, and David ran quickly to the front line to face him. David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone. He slung it, and it hit the Philistine on the forehead. The stone penetrated his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. We don't know if he's dead yet or just unconscious, but things are gonna get a little bit more hairy here, and that's how David triumphed over the Philistine, with just a sling and a stone striking the Philistine down and killing him, and David didn't even have a sword. In fact, some um, biblical scholars would say that the word used for forehead here might even be representative of knees as if to kneecap Goliath, to knock him over and then David would really finish the job here and what comes next. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine. He grabbed the Philistine's sword, drew it from its sheath and finished him off. Then David cut off the Philistine's head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they fled The soldiers from Israel and Judah jumped up with a shout and chased the Philistines all the way to Gath and the gates of Ekron. The dead Philistines were littered along the Shaarim road all the way to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites came back from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp, and David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put the Philistine's weapons in his own tent. Now when Saul saw David go out to meet the Philistine, he asked Abner, the army general, Abner, whose son is that boy? As surely as you live, your majesty. I don't know, Abner replied. Then find out whose son that young man is, the king replied. So when David came back from killing the Philistine, Abner sent for him and presented him to Saul that Philistine's head was still in David's hand. That's a, that's a pretty boss maneuver there. <laughs> What were you saying about the armor I needed? Okay, just tuck it away in the story, okay? I'm a pacifist, but in the story, okay? The Philistine's head was still in David's hand. Saul said to him, whose son are you, my boy? I am the son of your servant Jesse from Bethlehem. David answered, the word of God for the people of God. 15 minute Bible reading, how you doing? We've got, we've got, a ways to go here. We know this story though, do we not? We're familiar with this story, especially for anybody who has any sort of proclivities towards American sports. We love David and Goliath and the analogies that flow from it. We think about the Miracle on Ice back in 1980. We think about the 1983 NC State Wolfpack led by Jimmy V dethroning Phi Slamma Jamma. We also might think about the Mississippi State Bulldogs knocking off the UConn women's team who were riding a 111 game winning streak on the last four national championships. That girl hit a buzzer beater in overtime to beat them and win the championship. That was a David and Goliath story if ever there was one. We've got Buster Douglas knocking out Mike Tyson as a 42 to 1 underdog. We've got Holly Holm kicking Ronda Rousey right in the face. Again, pacifists. Okay, so no one was expecting this for the New England fans. We've got a couple just for you. We've got David Tyree with that little piece of bubblegum on the top of his head, slamming the football down after Eli had, had been all over the place and just chucked one up. And Super Bowl champs, the Philadelphia Eagles, led by one Nick Foles. Can you still meet Jesus here today? <laughs> Fly, eagle, David and Goliath is typically read as an underdog story where you have people that are not uh, meant to win ending up winning against all odds. And not only that, it's, it's usually a good versus evil story. It's a God versus Philistine story in 1 Samuel chapter 17. We have this punk kid, David, who's the youngest of, of eight brothers within a family who shows up with a staff and a sling, he's a shepherd, nobody's expecting him to be anything that he ends up becoming, so we end up importing all sorts of things into this story. And even David, within this text, he starts evoking the power of God to be the one who leads this charge. He says, you're coming against me with sword and spear and scimitar, but I come against you in the name of of the Lord of heavenly forces, the God of Israel's army, the one that you've insulted. He's basically saying, God is the one who is behind this work. I am his mere messenger. And we have the punk kid versus the maybe six and a half foot to nine foot giant who has no chance, according to any commentators of the day or odds makers of the day, yet this is what happens, David defeats Goliath, and in the canon of American understanding, this is what we, what we do with this story. This is how we read it, as an under, underdog tale. But let's get contextual here for a minute, because within the ancient Near East, we have to know something about warfare in order to understand what is really going on in this particular passage. Now, you have three different divisions of an army. You have the heavy infantry. These are the big guys. These are the guys all decked out in armor that move pretty slowly, and they can withstand the, um, the charges of, say, a cavalry, which we'll see here in a moment, because when they are standing in formation, they can have their pikes together, their, their big spears together, and ward off the advancements of any sort of chariotry or horses. So we have the heavy infantry that are really suited for hand-to-hand combat. They want to be close to someone so they can just grab them So we've got the heavy infantry, we've got the cavalry here, which is people on horses and chariots that are moving around, they're very uh, fast and they're attempting to make space for the heavy infantry. And then we have the light infantry as the third division of the army. Now the light infantry would be the projectile warriors. Not to be confused with our co-ed recreational summer league kickball team known as the projectile warriors, which this is absolutely where we got our name from, thinking about David. Although when we say that we are named the projectile warriors, most people just start thinking about, (laughs) but what you really should be thinking about is archers and slingers and people that are light on their feet and able to take uh, strategic shots from, from a distance. Now one scholar would say, if you're gonna think about these three different divisions in a typical ancient uh, army, you could think about them in terms of rock, paper, and scissors the heavy infantry will be able to defeat a cavalry, especially when they stand in formation against one another. The cavalry could potentially beat the light infantry, and the light infantry could potentially beat the heavy infantry. So if we're thinking about the David and Goliath story, what we have here is the heavy infantry, Goliath, with his hundreds of pounds of armor, wanting David to be in close proximity so that they can be in hand-to-hand combat versus David who is light on his feet and he doesn't doesn't want to be encumbered by any sort of weighted armor. He wants to be able to move freely without falling and and take down the giant. Even within the text itself, we get this picture of Goliath as one who can barely move because all throughout the story, as Goliath is moving closer to David, he doesn't quite ever reach him. It says the Philistine got closer and closer to David. When the Philistine looked over David, he finally sees him. And actually, um, you guys know Malcolm Gladwell He's an author, he's got a really good podcast called Revisionist History. He actually has a TED Talk about David and Goliath and he posits the theory that some people in the medical community would think that Goliath, as someone who was so much taller than everyone else, may have had a tumor on his pituitary gland which made his, his uh, vision blurred, potentially nearsighted or double vision, which is when David shows up with how many sticks? One, he says, you come at me with... Sticks plural, so some people mm-hmm. overread and say maybe he's seeing double because of this tumor on his pituitary gland because he's so tall. That's a lot, that's a lot. Okay, that's a lot of reading in, but still. uh, In the text, what we have here is the Philistine looking over to David and he's saying, come here, get over here, be close to me because we want to do warfare in the way that is expected. The Philistine, it it says he got up and he moved closer. It's like he's just moving so slowly and he's got his shield bearer out in front of him. He's like, get over here, you, come on, you. And David, meanwhile, has no armor on. and He's fleet-footed and he's running around, getting that sling, throwing the stone right in his most vulnerable spot because David is a proficient projectile warrior. (laughs) So this image here that you may have grown up with, big Goliath, he's got no like he's got no armor, he's moving fast and quickly, like he's he's coming after David. This is wrong because Goliath could barely move because of all the stuff he has on him. Now, if he could get close to David, it would have been a very quick fight, but David was not playing with these sorts of rules. In fact, one scholar, uh, Baruch Halpern says, David declines to abide by the rules of fighting and fights from outside of the ring. In other words, David had Goliath at a disadvantage unlike the miracle on ice, unlike the Mississippi State Bulldogs in Yukon, unlike the Eagles playing the Patriots a couple of years ago. This was something that was a little bit different here, and and some scholars are positing this view that David actually, because he's not observing the rules of military conduct, because he's not getting in close enough proximity to do hand-to-hand combat, because David's not an idiot, and he knows that he would get destroyed He's going out because of his zeal for the Lord to defend the honor of God. And there's a, there's a sermon here. It's not one I'm going to preach tonight. But there's a sermon here where David is shirking um, the expectations of the day in order to stand up for who God is. In fact, Gladwell even says giants are not as strong and powerful as they seem. And sometimes the shepherd boy has a sling in his pocket. Sometimes we take ourselves out of the fight with our giants. But another individual, that's that's me, (laughs) Yeah, okay, Malcolm, but this story is not about our giants. It angers me when people preach about David and Goliath and they come to you and say, what's your spiritual giant? What do you need to slay today with your slingshot? That's not what this story is about at all. It's telling us something about David's character, the type of person that he is. And let me just give you a spoiler. David is not the best character in the Old Testament. We read through the lenses of David as a guy after God's own heart, but if you really just look at what he's doing, he is defecting from his people, he is in cahoots with the Philistines later on, He's, he's engaged in warfare against his own people. It's not very pretty, okay? But we'll leave that there for a moment. But this story is telling us something about David's character, and in turn, it's telling us something of the better David who is to come, namely Jesus. I want you to to tuck that one away because that's where we're going to end up going, but we're not quite there yet. So this is an underdog story? No, not not really, not even close. Now, if we're gonna undo this, because if you've come into this space today and you've thought, yeah, David and Goliath, he's like, he's a little shepherd boy, he's a little punk kid, he had no business winning. <laughs> Actually, yeah, he was gonna win because he was more proficient at his artillery and was able to not observe the rules and he was placing himself in, a, in, a, in a, a, a good opportunity for him to win. That's an undoing of maybe what you've heard as a kid. I'm Gonna undo something else. And I need you to stick with me because it might, it might sting a bit. And God bless you, new visitors. <laughs> What a day, you know, what a day. Okay, I just need you to breathe and stick with me. Remember that bit at the end of the story where uh, Saul, the king of Israel, is saying to his chief commander, Abner, whose son is that boy? It's as if Saul has no idea who David is, right? He's looking and saying, okay, you've shown up and I need to give you all this armor and stuff and go out there, and then he wins. It's like, well, Abner, who, who was that guy? Where did he come from? What? How did he end up here in this place? Now, we know as readers, because as I was going along, remember, who is David? He's the son of Jesse. Jesse. And how many kids does Jesse have? How many sons? He's got eight. And the first three, what are their names? Oh, gotcha. That's one of them, good. Eliab is the oldest, Abinadab is the second oldest, and Shammah is the third oldest. We know that from 1 Samuel chapter 17 and we know David, we don't know anything about those other guys. Talk about middle child complex, you know? They're just, yeah, whatever. Nobody knows who who they are. But we know who David is. But also, if you're a close reader, Saul and Abner already know too. Because in the chapter before this, David shows up and becomes Saul's musician. Now this is the chapter where um, Samuel is running around and Samuel gets a call to go anoint God's king. There's already a king, but God's on the move and he wants somebody different. And Samuel is to go to the house of Jesse and to find the right one. So Samuel shows up and he meets all of Jesse's kids and he starts with Eliab, who's named. And he's like, surely this is the guy, good looking guy, tall guy, warrior guy. And God's like, nope. Well, we got a Abinadab. It's gotta be a binadab. Good-looking guy, sorta of tall, warrior, not Abinadab. Maybe it's Shammah, God, you know, he's good, whatever, not him, all the way down the line until finally, it's David who is anointed as the soon-to-be king. Meanwhile, the spirit, it says, is leaving Saul and that he is actually being tormented by another evil spirit, and whenever he's tormented by an evil spirit, what does he want to do to relax? This is pre-Xanax, okay? So that's not gonna help him. He wants somebody to play the lyre, somebody to play a stringed instrument. And one of his men says, I know a guy. See, there's this guy named Jesse, and he's got a boy named David, and he's really good at the lyre. So if he would just come and, and hang out with you, then maybe you would relax when this spirit takes over. And so he does. And when he's first introduced to Saul, it says that he is a warrior who can also play the guitar sort of instrument. Saul, in the text, already knows David. But then in 1 Samuel 17, we have a totally different picture of who David is. It's as if Saul doesn't know that he exists. We have these two traditions hanging out right next to each other. In fact, Joel Baden, who's an Old Testament professor at Yale, says the David we meet in the first two chapters of his story in 16 and 17, is the David of our cultural memory, the David we hold on to in popular imagination. And yet, despite their cultural resonance, Despite the complete picture of the faithful hero they paint, when we try to read these two stories as a narrative history of David's youth, something is fundamentally askew. You're sitting down, okay? To put it bluntly, he says, both stories cannot be true as they are told in the Bible. We have these two pictures of who David is that are sitting right next to each other and they seem to be in conflict. It's getting shaky. It's about to get worse, okay? I just need you to hang with me for seven minutes. My mom is giving me a face like, you better tie this up for me, son. I will do my best, Mom, but I can't make you any promises. The most familiar story of the Goliath tradition is in 1 Samuel 17. It's the one that I spent 15 minutes reading to you. It's, Goli- it's Goliath, the big guy in all this armor, and David, the little guy, running around, maybe squeaking around, and he's not really, you know, what am I doing here? Like that kind of situation. Um, but we also have another tradition in 2 Samuel 21 that also talks about Goliath. This is gonna make you mad, are you, are you gonna be okay? I don't know, you don't know either. You're okay right now, but this is the text from 2 Samuel chapter 21. It says, in another battle with the Philistines at Gob, different place name, el son of Jer, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, who had a spear like, uh, with a shaft like a weaver's rod. We've heard this language before, yes? And right now, there's really no problem with this, right? Who does Elhanan kill? The brother, of the brother of Goliath. This is where it gets dicey, and this is where you're going to take your Bible and throw it against the wall. But don't do that, okay? It's still good, all right? The Hebrew doesn't have the brother of. The Hebrew is best read as in another battle with the Philistines at Gob, Elhanan, son of Jer, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath, who had a big old spear the size of a weaver's rod, which is the same language that's used in 1 Samuel 17. This is our Bible. Okay, this is our Bible. I want us to be able to celebrate it, to, uh, to love it, but also to be honest with what it's saying to us. And on the face of this, is this a problem? Yeah, because in 1 Samuel 17, we've got David defeating Goliath, whose spear was really big. And then in 2 Samuel 21, we've got another guy who's defeating Goliath, whose spear was, was really big. And then we get another tradition in 1 Chronicles. Now, the thing you have to know about Chronicles is this. Chronicles is a retelling of Samuel Kings, and it's a retelling that happens much, 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 much later. And Chronicles knows about Samuel and Kings and the stories there, and Chronicles knows when there's problems and when there's issues, and Chronicles likes to make those problems go away. What's David's biggest problem in his life? What was one of his biggest ethical failures in his life? Yeah, remember when he's hanging out on the rooftop, just minding his own business, spots a girl and says, I want, get. There's lots of ways that we could, could read this. None of them make David look like a man after God's own heart. What do you think Chronicles does with that? It does not make the cut because the way that Chronicles wants to tell the story is David's real good. He's squeaky clean. So we can't put in that story of him and Bathsheba. We can't put in that story of him hanging out on the rooftop. We can't put that in. We gotta leave that out. So the way that Chronicles is attempting to make these things go together is they're doing just that. They're trying to make them go together. Now with the background here of that happening, this is what we have in Chronicles. It says, in another battle with the Philistines, Elhanan, son of Jer, killed, now we have a name, killed Lami, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. Now most scholars would say that there is no way on earth that this text is meaning to say Lami as a real personal name. Most people will say that this is based on a misreading of Bethlehemite which has the same consonants in this construction. They're all saying that Chronicles is attempting to make sense of the the problem between Elhanan and David killing Goliath, so they insert this guy in order to make it all go away. You okay? Again, this is Joel Baden. Surely one of the two accounts is a duplicate of the other. The question then becomes, which story is original and which is the duplicate? It hardly seems likely that anyone would think to take a story originally about David and retell it with a different protagonist, especially a protagonist who is otherwise a non-entity in the Hebrew Bible. If David really did this, there's no way on earth that anyone would ever say that El-Hanan did this. It doesn't make any sense. It's equally unlikely, he says, that anyone would take a very full narrative of David's victory and reduce it to a single verse. It just wouldn't happen. Another scholar says this of the same uh, problem that we're looking at in the text. He says, of the two reports, the story of El-Hanan killing Goliath may well be more plausible. In the literary shaping of the story of David, a triumph originally attributed perhaps with good reason to el was transferred to David and grafted onto the folktale pattern of the killing of a giant or an ogre by a resourceful young man. You've heard all those stories, right? Of a resourceful young man killing a giant or an ogre. No, okay. The writers use this material, as we have seen, to shape a vivid and arresting portrait of David's debut. In other words, El-Hanan was the guy, and then the authors say, this is a really good story, let's give it to David instead to make him look better than what he is. Most likely, another uh, scholar here says, most likely storytellers displaced the deed of killing Goliath from the otherwise obscure El Hanan onto the more famous character David. The story as it was told was invaluable for delineating David's character. So we have all of these scholars uh, from the the three that I quoted, actually all three of them, Jewish scholars, looking at this passage saying El Hanan in the tradition was probably the one that killed a really tall guy named Goliath. But when these stories and traditions were told of David, they take this story and they apply it to David. And you might be sitting there saying, why are you doing all of this? I really enjoy the Bible and I really enjoy David and Goliath. The first reason is because I want us to be honest with what we have in the text and at least in my circumstance, I was never in a room with somebody like me who passionately loves Jesus, who passionately cares about the lost, who passionately cares about seeing justice done on earth, who passionately cares about restoring this place to how God intended it, I've never seen that person talk honestly to me about the the Bible in a way that addresses at least the issues that are presented in other places. SU students, if you happen to find yourself in the Bible as literature, this might be something that you talk about. I think it's important for us to be aware of it and to figure out what to do with it as well. Now, I wanna just kind of land the plane here a bit because I do think that it's going to be okay. I do think that we're going to survive this. I do think that we're going to be able to leave here thinking that our Bible is still great and beautiful and inspired and authoritative and meant to be read and, and pursued. And we're meant to get our hands dirty, trying to figure out what it means in its context to see how these things affect us where we are. These, in my best understanding, these are shaped David traditions where the authors are attempting to give us a picture of who David is. And it's important for us to know that David's a bit of a train wreck. However we we skew this, do these names ring a bell to any of you? David's wives. David's wives minus Bathsheba, because I really didn't want to tip you off. There's another scholar who, talks about David uh, in the Psalms, and it talks about his loins burning. And she was like, of course his loins were burning. He probably had an STD. (laughs) That's funny. That's that's good comedy, okay? I'm sorry if I've hurt you up to this point, but come back with me for the comedy at least, okay? Okay. but David here, um, we've seen the, the story as it's told and when we strip away some of the ideas that we have about him and we read the Bible for what it is and how it's presented and how it's, be, how it's communicating to us and understand what's going on, we might have a, a better picture of who David actually is and it's not always great. The thing, the reason why David is in the scriptures, just like every other person in the Bible, they're all pointing us forward to Jesus. The story of David and Goliath is not about your spiritual Goliaths that you must slay. The story is about frail human leaders that have been placed in power by God, sure, but the way that they live their life, it shows demonstrable flaws that cannot compare to the beauty of Jesus. Everything about these people, it just shows you that that they're not what God was intending, and the only thing that could be that is Jesus. David is pointing us forward to the Messiah. In fact, all throughout the Old Testament, it's not just about David. It's about the David to come. It's about the next David. It's about the David who would reign and rule in God's place, the David that God would bring about to lead his people. And that reaches its culminating climax in Jesus. And David is pushing us towards that. But I will say this. Perhaps there's a takeaway from his battle with Goliath that we can see. If these are shaped stories about David and how he is uh, being portrayed, these are characteristics about uh, God's ruler, God's king. And remember, we, we talked about this. David was not obeying the rules. David was not operating in a way that his, his combatant could have predicted. If David's pointing us forward, perhaps This is giving us a small image of Jesus who also did not participate according to the rules of his time. Everyone was thinking that he would show up on a big white horse and completely destroy the Roman Empire. Everyone was thinking that he would completely waylay all of the problems for Israelites at the moment, but what did he do? He laid it all down. He sacrificed himself for his people, for the betterment of this world and so that we could become part of his family. If we have a David back here in this, in this battle who is sort of an underdog but not really because he's not playing with the same rules, then we, maybe we have a Jesus who's also showing up and not observing the same boxes that society is placing on him to institute what God has for us in a way that's radically changed everything. I'm also gonna offer this to you. If you've come into this space today with an idea of what faith is, with an understanding of what your sacred text is, of how God operates in your life, maybe let this be a moment where that box begins to crack a little bit. Because when we attempt to put God in it, we've missed. When we believe that we have it all figured out, We're only demonstrating our own ignorance. We cannot fathom the beauty and grace and goodness of God. And when we attempt to place it there, I believe we miss so much of the beautiful riches that we could receive if we allowed God to move in new and fresh ways. Last thing, if this has completely destroyed you, hang out with me. There's a good coffee shop across the road. We can go sit there and you can ask all your big questions and I can say, that's a good question. Let's think about that. And at the end of that conversation, what we can do, if you've been here for two hours, or if you've been here for two years, what we can do at the end of that conversation is celebrate the risen Jesus together who gives us life and gives us hope.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of TRP's weekly podcast. If you live in or near Salisbury, Maryland, come join us for one of our Sunday services. We'd love to meet you. If you're interested, you can get more info on our website, RestoreSBY.org, or on our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash RestoreSBY. If you're a regular listener, thanks for coming back. If you've benefited from what we do and would like to support us, you can share all your kind words and good vibes with the world by rating us on iTunes. Or if you're so inclined, you can give financially at give.restoresby.org. We'll see you next week.